Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about queuing and waiting in line. Uh, we've got lots more stuff to get into today, queuing psychology, the horror and the anguish of cutting in line. It's going to be a blast. But first, we'd like to start uh, with, with really a, a proper look at the British queue. Uh, this is uh, something that we, we even heard from a listener, a listener by the name of D about, saying, hey, how come you guys didn't talk more about about uh, waiting in line in merry old England. And so let's get into that a bit. Uh, but before we do, I thought I'd, I'd just throw in a quick quote from William Shakespeare. Quote, I am to wait, though waiting so be hell. <laughs> so be? Well, what's it's that so from? Be hell. Uh-huh. Um, it's from one of his sonnets. The, the number uh, is eluding me at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sonnet 58. Okay. Let me suffer being at your beck. This is the, the, the abject one. Now, to be sure, he's not, well, he's not talking about waiting in line, but I feel like it it could apply to the modern experience of waiting in line because waiting in line so be hell as well. Unless you make waiting in line part of your identity and then you can every time you have to do it, you can get real excited about how good at it you are. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and perhaps this is this is getting into the, uh, the the British spirit of the thing. So in the previous episode, I briefly mentioned British criticisms of queuing as socialism. So I thought I'd go I thought I'd go into this a bit more uh, as it regards the uh, the history of queuing in Britain. And I was looking at uh, an article titled Queuing Up in Postwar Britain by Joe Moran, published in 20th Century British History, Volume 16, that came out in the year 2005. Yeah, I've read a number of things about uh, queuing where where this author, uh, Joe Moran, is cited, and he appears to be kind of a historian of everyday life, which is a a field that I find a lot of interest in, like um, Mm -hmm. studying not just like, you know, the big events of history, the wars and the political changes and all that, but but what people had to do in the little uh, less noted moments of day-to-day existence. Yeah. A lot of times while the big stuff's going on, uh, yeah. what are the little things? And oftentimes, and this comes out in, in this particular paper, you see the, 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 the larger events and the larger movements of the day, you see it all filtering down to, to, to the day-to-day level. And in this case, concerning waiting in lines for things. So in the immediate post-war period, post-World War II, amid scarcity problems, you had queuing and there was a sense of queuing as an absolute good. It was this thing, you know, you're, you're doing your part. It's important that we wait in line. It's important that we work together and we socially organize in order to make sure that we get what we need amid the scarcity. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think it really became part of the British identity in the post-World War II period, but it was also a big part of the uh, of British sort of internal propaganda messaging during World War II, because there was a time when, you know, you were dealing with a lot of scarcity of goods within the country as well. And and there was a kind of national messaging campaign that was like, hey, you know, do your part. Uh, Good British citizens, they do their duty, they wait their turn for things. You you display the British virtues of calmness, decency, fairness. This is the British way. Yeah, it's like minding the gap. It's just what you're supposed to do as a, as a proper uh, British person. And you had a number of authors of the day even commenting on this. Author George Orwell wrote that a foreign visitor to Britain would have been struck by the, quote, orderly behavior of English crowds, the lack of pushing and quarreling, the willingness to form cues. And then there's a famous uh, George Mike's quote from 1946, quote, an Englishman, even if he is alone, forms an orderly cue of one. Right. So sort of writing it into the political identity or the national character of, of Great Britain. Right. So so for these authors and many other commentators, queuing behavior was subpolitical and all about the greater good in a proper English fashion. But queuing had been seen uh, in, a, in a very different light as well, uh, not only as, as sort of creeping socialism, but as a byproduct of wartime scarcity that damaged morale and impacted women more than men. Uh, the idea here being that uh, women would be the ones going out during the day and waiting in lines for things. Mm-hmm. And there were there were various voices talking about, well, this this might be a detriment to their health as well. Like the, these women should not be standing in line for long periods of time. Why do we have long lines? So Moran writes that these cues, uh, you have all these other uh, things going on, too. Uh, for instance, he writes that uh, these, lo- these cues were also a hotbed of anti-Semitism. 
uh, along with other resentments and accusations uh, at other customers, but also against shopkeepers. Uh, so queuing, despite it being tied in with these ideas of national pride and, and necessity, it was also highly unpopular and therefore rife for politicization. So it became a divisive topic that politicians latched onto. And this is where you get into the whole creeping socialism uh, thing. Yeah, it seems to me that queuing throughout its history has often gotten charged up with political, social, and moral baggage, like people trying to use queuing or aspects of queuing to make a point about some pet issue they have. Uh, so you'll often see like politicians and cultural critics um, attacking queuing as symbolic of something they believe to be nefarious. In some cases, like you could have conservative politicians saying that it's somehow uh, somehow emblematic of socialism or of government control. But there's another strain of a similar type of thinking that I know I've encountered before. I was trying to think of a really good specific example to point to, and I couldn't. But I know I've heard something like this from a general just kind of anti-conformity uh, rant. You hear people mm -hmm. say, like, school's trying to teach you to conform, man. They want to turn you into sheep so that you can't think for yourself. They want you to do what you're told and stand in line and wait your turn. And to me, this is such a tragic conflation of, like, unrelated issues. Obviously, you know, duh, it's good to think for yourself and have the courage to resist social pressure to conform, to do something wrong or immoral. But there's like nothing intelligent or morally courageous about resisting waiting your turn for a service. That's just being a jerk. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think this is what um, Pink Floyd's The Wall was about. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so if anyone out there wants just a, a really nice kind of deep dive into all of this, I do suggest that Moran article. He goes into wonderful detail, but ultimately he surmises that you see this shift over time from queuing and is an example of the best of proper Britishness to a symbol of the British disease uh, and then ultimately to a less politicized reality that can be beneficial or harmful, depending on the circumstance. Um, I want to read a quote from him that I think drives home this kind of dual nature. Quote, people have been complaining about uh, the uh, disintegration of Q discipline for almost as long as they have been lauding the Q as the essence of British decency. Perhaps because the myth carries such symbolic weight that it cannot be sustained by the necessarily messier reality. The notion of cues as the embodiment of fairness and equality has also existed alongside other discourses which have seen them as tedious, unfair, and inefficient. So, yeah, it's, it's like you say, the, the, the lines, the cues, they kind of become whatever you need them to be, yeah. depending on what your argument is and what the particular example is. I was actually reading a BBC News article from a few years back that quoted uh, this historian, uh, Joe Moran, extensively uh, in, in talking about these various ideas about cues over the years. And he brings up this very thing about how, like, some of the same types of figures that you would in previous decades have seen complaining about cueing. Uh, as as a sign of something wrong with the national character are now often seen complaining about the the decline of queuing discipline, say, <laughs> like complaining about bus stops saying, oh, people are so disorderly getting onto buses now. Uh, but I, I think in the article, Moran makes the case that actually what's going on probably is the difference between queuing areas that have well-organized infrastructure that allows people to know where and how to line up versus queuing areas where people are forced to self-organize without any clear organizing principle like, uh, you know, uh, stanchions to stand between or something. Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of it probably comes down to, isn't there like a George Carlin bit about how fast you're driving? And, uh, and it, you know, it's like you either think people are going too fast or too slow, but it's based on whatever you are doing. Right. It's, yes. Uh, so a lot of this is going to come down to what is your experience right now standing in line? Uh, is the line tedious? Is the line long? Well, and then perhaps you're inclined to apply that to cues and lines in general or order in general. You know, I, I could see where one awful queuing experience could almost make you an anarchist at least for you know a couple of hours uh, before you calm down but see the funny thing is i think an anarchist should be especially in love with queuing because queuing is a self-organizing principle by which people order access to things so if you're an anarchist queuing should be like that, that should be like your <laughs> go-to example of like how how you get things done without top-down control right 
Yeah, yeah. Unless you want to say they are making you stand in line. This is top-down control, uh, you know, in practice, uh, because there's the sign telling you to do it. Oh, yeah. I guess that's another variation on what I was talking about a minute ago, that like attitude that like, oh, standing in line and waiting your turn is like, that's a, you know, wake up sheeple kind of thing. You're, you're being mm-hmm. a sheep by doing that. Um, that's just like confusing that because there is social pressure to do some things that are stupid and bad, therefore anything there is social pressure to do is stupid and bad. Yeah. When in fact, I just want to reiterate again, if you are being a jerk about the line, you are the problem. It's not everybody else. Now, one thing to keep in mind about queuing is that for many of us, this is just simply how we grew up. You know, we're taught very early on, often in school, the importance of forming lines. Like that's how that's how you get your lunch. Well, at lunchtime, right, is you form up into a line, maybe two lines. Mm-hmm. You make your way down the hall and you, uh, you, you go through the cafeteria and you collect your food. And there's an order to all of this. And, and frankly, like I think back on it and I can't imagine it going another way. Um, but I haven't really thought about this before, but this is apparent, you know, this is not going to be the case with everybody. You're not going to necessarily have, have been in, indoctrinated into queuing and line forming early on in life. And uh, I was reading about this in uh, an interesting article by David Charosha uh, titled Teaching Queuing Culture in Early Childhood from 2019, dealing specifically with queuing in Indonesia. Basically, they write that while Indonesians are generally considered to be a, a very polite society, there generally isn't a queuing culture. Quote, Indonesians will only queue if they are forced into the system. For example, queuing at the bank with the ticketing system. And the, the author goes on to point out that early indoctrination into queuing culture is necessary for it to take hold, and it has to be passed down generation to generation. So um, I, I, thought that, I thought that was interesting. I, never, I don't think I've really seen that pointed out so much to me. You know, and part of it is just kind of like growing up uh, in, in a queuing culture. You just kind of assume that this is, this is the kind of, of, of order that is instilled in, in you at, a, at an early age. Yeah, and it'd, it'd be interesting to see what aspects in particular of queuing culture uh, are the ones that, that, you know, you gain, that you learn in young childhood and which are the ones that are dependent on the individual circumstances you come across. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but I would guess that that there are certain kind of broad principles, like, say, the incorporation of the first-in, first-out principle um, yeah. that probably depend on early learning and uh, and that there are other things such as, like, how lines are physically organized or, like, how exceptions to the rule are handled that might be more dependent on uh, individual local circumstances, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like, wouldn't it be interesting if we if we went – really went elementary school and all of our self-organizing lines and we all put ourselves in alphabetical order uh, whenever <laughs> we're, you know, trying to get that, um, you know, croissant sandwich or, or mm-hmm. whatever in, in line. Then there'd just be a rush for everybody to name their children things that start with like four A's. Yeah. Well, we're going to go by last name. What elementary school did you go to? Oh, well, the, then that just establishes like a, uh, a generational aristocracy of the people at the top of the alphabet. <laughs> Now, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind about this uh, the, this example from Indonesia and this this author's work is that yeah, you know, when, when we're talking about this, we're generally dealing in in you know generalities. We're dealing yeah. you know, if you say like how how are English people at standing in line? Well, you know that's a very broad statement to make, uh, but there's there's still some interesting insight uh, to be had from looking at some of these generalities that have been pointed out by authors um, about queuing cultures or the lack of a queuing culture. And I was looking at one titled A Global Guide to Queuing Philosophies from Wimbledon to Sao Paulo. Uh, And this was uh, on Quartz by uh, an author by the name of Rosie Spinks. Uh, But the tidbits about the various cultures are added by different reporters uh, who have experience with the cited countries. Hmm. Uh, so I recommend reading the whole article. And I assume, again, these are all generalities and subject to the problems of being very general about uh, queuing cultures. Uh, but I thought I might run through them and just give you like the quick, just couple of words, summarizations on them. Okay. So let's start with England. England, good at queuing. Okay. Not, not okay. really a surprise. Germany, uh, the article says, not as good as you might expect. Mexico, this was interesting, good, but you have this added element of heat a lot of the times. If you're dealing with really intense sun, they say that you're going to end up with uh, special rules and expectations coming into play. Like, Mm. did you bring a fan to the line, that sort of thing? And Mm. are you the only one in the line with a fan? So um, uh, that's interesting to think about environment and all of this. 
Yeah. Now, with mainland China, they point out that there are stark generational differences for older generations. It works in spirit, but reality favors the bold. So um, <laughs> if there's a chance to, to cut line, perhaps someone will. But younger generations will be more likely to queue and are not concerned about being, quote, last in line. I've actually read that uh, in the past couple of decades, there have been like pu- a lot of public messaging campaigns in China having to do with queuing as like a, a sort of part of your civic duty. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I remember reading about uh, some of these campaigns in the lead up to the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Yeah. Now, um, I should also point out, uh, you know, there, there, uh, you also have areas like Hong Kong where there is a strong queuing culture, mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps part of that is the British influence. Um, India, there's a queuing culture, but according to this article, it's it tends to be a compact queuing uh, culture. So, uh, and maybe that just has to do with with major uh, centers of population and the necessity of forming lines that are going to be maybe uh, you know have a little less space in them. Mm-hmm. America, the United States, uh, they say queuing is everywhere, but the exact rules vary depending on where you are, which I think that you know vaguely matches up with my experience. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Uh, Malaysia, queues form, but easily break into disarray. Poland, uh, they say there is a, a queuing culture with older generations having lived in a time of long lines. So you're going to have, you know, varying attitudes towards what lines are and well, what they mean. Mm-hmm. Italy, uh, the, the author points out, I had never heard this before, but they, the, this, uh, the author says that Italians sometimes talk about being bad at queuing, but they're actually not that bad at queuing. Uh, I, I cannot speak to this. I've never been to Italy. Uh, but uh, uh, with all of these, I'd love to hear from anyone out there who has direct connections uh, to, to any of these cultures or has traveled there. Perhaps you can shed a little more light on, uh, on some of these ideas. Um, Brazil, pretty solid queuing culture in major cities. South Africa, strong queuing culture. This was uh, interesting. Thailand, strong queuing culture, but with some interesting extra rules. So uh, they cite um, an author by the name of uh, Adam uh, Pasek, who shares a photo of uh, people who have deposited their shoes and books uh, on on the floor to signify their place in line while they wait for an office to open. So That's it's smart. kind of, a, it is, it is very smart. It gives you, you know, a chance to sit down, uh, but you just place your shoes or I think in one case, it looks like a book or a folder. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's mostly shoes in this photo um, because if, if I remember correctly, there are some taboos in Thailand against the placing of books on the ground. So I'm not even sure that's a book in that photo. Uh, but anyway, it's mostly shoes. Um, but it also kind of looks like the people that were in line have evaporated and vanished and left only their shoes behind. <laughs> well, it's the rapture at the Bangkok DMV. Yeah, kind of. Uh, in this article, they say that in, in the Philippines, it, it seems like uh, queuing culture is highly influenced by social standing. And in Nigeria, you have a queuing culture, but some people may choose to sit or hang out nearby, uh, you know, instead of standing in line the whole time, and have someone who is standing in line uh, physically to hold their spot for them. So lines can be deceiving when you first arrive till you find out who all is actually waiting. And in a way, this makes sense, right? If you have, especially say the line is is out in the sun or something, mm-hmm. and you have, uh, you know, an, uh, an elderly person that doesn't want to stand there the whole time, you get somebody to hold their place, that sort of thing. Sure, yeah. Th- this raises a question of... Um what do you consider like what counts as strict adherence to queuing culture does it count as strict adherence to queuing culture if you're just doing it in the abstract meaning there's strong enforcement of an organized first in first out principle or does it in also entail physical ordering of your of your body in terms Mm -hmm. of the first in first out uh principle you know what i mean yeah yeah for example, another type of variation on this, one that sounds like it adheres to the first-in, first-out queuing principle in the abstract of like how the waiting system functions but doesn't take the form of a single-file line. Uh, this example is that uh, – and I was reading about this in an article for the BBC by David Robson uh, about how in Spain and in some Spanish-speaking countries, a common alternative to physically standing in line is the quienes ultimo principle. So – that uh, that you would go into, say, a, a cafe where various people are waiting for service, and instead of standing in line, 
you ask Kines Ultimo, who is last, and then that person indicates, yeah, I'm the last person in line. And so you know that that person is now the person who you go after, and they know the person ahead of them, and the person ahead of them knows the person ahead of them. And so everybody will still go in order, but you can just kind of hang out and wait for the person you know who is ahead of you to get their service, and then you're next. Mm. So interesting to me in that it's still functionally a single file, first in, first out queue, but without the physical line, kind of like what you were describing people might do in Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say from my own experience, I find it particularly confusing when you have two different queuing systems going on at the same time. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Like if you, you show up somewhere and there is some sort of they're, – they're, they're doing both – uh, prearranged appointments and walk in at the same time mm-hmm. because then it creates confusion. It's like, well, who is next? Is it the person who is scheduled for this time or the person who is ahead of me in the physical line? You know, it creates this ambiguity uh, that uh, it, it does not seem good for the whole waiting experience. Well, it's funny that you bring up ambiguity because I wanted to get into the concept of the dangers of ambiguity with reference to cutting in line. So are you ready to talk about cutting in line, Rob? Let's talk about cutting. So I started off by thinking about the question, okay, what do you actually do if somebody cuts in front of you in line? And in thinking about this, I was struck by how rarely that has actually happened in my life. Like it is such a rare occurrence that I struggle to think of specific examples that that come to mind. I guess when it has happened, it hasn't it registered as something immensely important to me. Um, but it, but it's also just so rare. Uh, and I think in my experience, what it is, is that it's very rare for someone to blatantly cut in front of me in a situation where the rules of the line are clear. Yeah. I think the issue with perceived line cutting arises much more often in situations where there's some kind of ambiguity in the system of ordering access. And here's my example. Okay. You're at a restaurant. And there's a long wait, and so maybe uh, you and the person you're there with, you decide you want to try to get a seat at the bar because the bar is first come, first serve. And you see there's another couple that's sitting at the bar, and they're about to get up and leave. So you position yourself to grab their seats when, when they get up. And you're standing there waiting and waiting and waiting. And then finally they get up, but then somebody jumps in right in front of you and grabs the chairs. What do you do? Like, this is difficult because the rules are ambiguous. Like, you could go and try to protest and say, hey, actually, we were already waiting on those seats and you just got here. But that person could say, well, I didn't see you and I got the seats first and they're first come, first serve. And in in a situation like this, there's no clear way of resolving it. Like, you can't appeal to a rule book. So usually what it just means is the seats go to whoever is more selfish, unreasonable and willing to make a scene. Yeah, this is true. And but I totally agree with you. Like the moments where I have seen something like line cutting occurring, they tend to be situations where there is this ambiguity, like at line formation. Like yeah. say a bunch of people showing up to say, well, I think an example that that I think that I can easily draw on was going to a mass vaccination site mm. um where you had a really well-maintained um uh, line system and queuing system, mm-hmm. but what do you do when you haven't arrived at the queue yet? And uh, and what do you see when you, you see other people going towards that spot? You know, I like I know that I'm walking at a you know click faster than a lot of people. I'm just mm-hmm. going to get there first. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm cutting in front of them. Uh, likewise, but I could see where people might think that it's like, oh wow, he's really making a beeline to get in line there. But we're talking about just sort of the, the crowd assembling and then forming the line. Right. When it's not clear what the boundaries of the line are yet. Like, is yeah. this the line now or does it only count as the line once we get over there? Right. Uh, another case would be really long lines that they kind of break down at places. Like maybe there's a period in the line where things move really fastly, uh, mm-hmm. really, really swiftly, and not everybody's moving at the same speed. I've seen that yeah. create a situation well where some people just walk faster and they're going to be ahead. But is it cutting? Is it not? It ends up kind of being this gray area. Or it can be, depending on how the the queue is maintained. I think another big example of this kind of ambiguous space with, with access to things comes with like parking spaces. Mm. Uh, you know, somebody... 
somebody cuts in front of you to get a parking space that you're waiting to turn into, but you know, you were blocked because the person was backing out of it or something. And, and in those cases, people can get really mad, but I guess you do have to admit, well, there's just like, there's not an established rule book here. And especially if like a person didn't see you waiting, I don't know. What can you do? Well, here's one. Uh, Okay. When someone is holding a place in line for someone else, Mm -hmm. It, I find I, I sometimes like to, to to think like, well, what is the cutoff line for not offending somebody? Because I would often be the case where like I'll hold a place in line while my wife and my son go and do something else, you know, mm-hmm. because a, a little kid's not going to want to stand in line. Uh, so maybe they'll go look at a fountain or something and then they come back. And so people might think, oh, I just thought I had one person ahead of me. I thought one order of ice cream was ahead of me. No, but it's three orders. So at what point does it become uh, just too much? Like if, say three family members come back, four, five, seven? Or is mm-hmm. it, or if it, what if it's clear that it's not family members, but just friends? Then does it become uh, potentially irritating? Or what if, it, what if it appears to be people who, who know each other but were, did not arrive there together? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I think it's, it's obvious that a lot of conflict about line cutting arises in situations where there's a lack of clarity about the norms for organizing access or when there's a lack of clarity about how to handle exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, this leads me to believe that uh, if, I don't know, if you're designing some kind of system and, and you want people to have the most satisfaction with their line waiting process, I would say tend, tend towards really clear rules for how the line works. Is it, people really do get get mad in these ambiguous situations when they don't go their way. Mm-hmm. But anyway, coming back to the idea of cutting. Okay, so all of these ambiguities aside, what if somebody just actually cut right in front of you in a normally organized line, just clear and blatantly, they just get in front of you? What would you do? I'm interested in your answer, but maybe first we should look at a look at a study about this and then come back to it. So the, the uh, famous American psychologist Stanley Milgram, you know, he's <laughs> best known for his controversial experiments in the 1960s on the suspension of personal morality and obedience to authority. You know, his uh, his famous uh, experiments where he would have experimenters. Uh, pretend to be receiving electric shocks from the test subject in response to like failed answers on a, on a quiz or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they have an authoritative guy there in a lab coat telling them to keep doing it, even though the person complained they were in pain and all that. Um, And so that, that's his most famous work and, and most controversial. There are a lot of questions about what kind of conclusions people should actually draw from those studies and the ethics of them and so forth. But uh, later in his career in the 1980s, Milgram actually carried out experiments to test people's reactions to line cutting scenarios, which seems somehow uh, suitably perverse, sort of like yeah. <laughs> in line with the previous experiments, right? Uh, so uh, these were published in uh, a in an article called "Response to Intrusion into Waiting Lines" in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 1986, and it was by Milgram, uh, Hillary J. Liberty, Raymond Toledo, and Joyce Wackenhut. And uh, in this article, they, quote, explored the relationship between the spatial configuration of the queue, which is viewed as a social system susceptible to experimental analysis, and the means by which its integrity is defended. (laughs) Confederates intruded themselves into 129 naturally occurring waiting lines, and the defensive reactions of the queuers were noted. Wait, so he just he just sent people out to mess with folks waiting in line to cut in line yeah he said well there, there were multiple so sometimes there would be multiple confederates there were different experimental setups sometimes some of the experimenters were actually in the line sometimes they weren't sometimes they just have one cut in a line uh i'll describe a few of the specifics here but the the general idea here is that milgram sent out the experimenters into various natural queuing areas in new york for example lines in train stations and i think also in betting parlors uh, which sounds especially <laughs> um, and then they would just have them cut right into the line. They would cut in after the third person in line and before the fourth uh, without giving an excuse. I think sometimes they would just say, quote, excuse me, I would like to get in here. And people did not like this at all. Uh, They recorded all kinds of reactions. There were hostile glares, shouting, telling people to get to the back. About 10% of the time, other people in line physically reacted, like pulling or shoving the violator out of the line. Uh, It's about one in 10 cases. 
and yet, also, a substantial number of the line cutters got away with it. I don't know what the number on that was overall, but it like it wasn't a tiny minority. Like It may have even been in a majority of cases the person cut in and just got to stay there. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's so many things to take into account if this were to happen. Uh, I mean, on one level, I have to think about with what confidence they're doing it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, since you have a system in place, then if someone is treating themselves like an exception, I feel like for my part, my, one, one of the things I might consider is, well, maybe they're supposed to cut in line, you know, like maybe they have a reason. Maybe they work here and they need to just check with the teller real quick or mm-hmm. perhaps they're an authority, like maybe they're an undercover cop or something. And they're just like, you know, this is maybe not related to the rest of the clientele. This is really important. I, I want to come back to that in just okay. a minute because I think you're on to something. But then the other thing, and this is, you know, brought up, you brought up the physical um, interaction, the idea of someone grabbing them and pulling them back. Like that's, that feels like a huge step to take because you're, you're laying hands on somebody. You're, you're bringing it, it's escalating to a level that could have dire consequences for, for numerous people in the scenario. And so, you know, if, even if I realize that the person who just intentionally cut in line in front of me, you know, has no rightful excuse to do it, I would have to think, well, do I want to get involved with this any further? Like, it sucks that they cut in front of me, but Mm -hmm. it would suck more if I got into an argument or even a, a physical confrontation with them. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how the norms go both ways. I mean, I would say do not ever just cut in line. That is unbelievably rude. But if somebody cuts in line in front of you, you do not need to escalate this to the level of violence. You know, you don't put your hands on them. You also don't need to call the cops. I mean, you might – if it's a really important situation, you might try to get the store's manager or whatever it is. But this is not a situation that merits escalation to to a physical altercation. Plus, I'm not the kind of person who just – breaks in a conversation with strangers anyway. Right. And if I do, I need a, a pretty good idea that this is going to be pleasant. Like, oh, they're wearing the, a T-shirt with a, a band I like or a movie I like right. on it. This is a good sign that we have a, a, we can have a pleasant interaction for a few seconds. But if if the whole relationship has been has started with them cutting in line in front of me and seeming to do so intentionally, then this this relationship is going nowhere. Oh, the, I mean, that's another thing is you might assume that, like, if someone were to cut in front of you accidentally and you think, oh, this person might be totally reasonable if you just let them know, hey, actually, the the line starts back there. That would be a different thing than somebody blatantly just jumping in in front of the fourth person in line and saying, I need to get in here. At that point, I think, okay, this person, there's something wrong with them. This person is very unreasonable and you probably just don't want to get into it with them. But on the other hand, if they seem to have done it accidentally, there are a couple of ways that could play, too, because it might be, well, maybe this person is, I don't know, less aware of of their surroundings. Mm -hmm. There could be some underlying circumstance or they're just having an extremely distracting day. Uh, You know, who knows? And then and then also, I mean, maybe maybe they need this win. Maybe they (laughs) I don't want to be the person to to break it to them that actually the line starts back there because now we're having a negative interaction. Right. And I think a lot of people in the scenario uh, actually behaved just like we're talking about. Like, like I said, a lot of people gave sort of hostile looks, but ultimately didn't do anything, like didn't try to shout at the person or, or remove them from the line physically. Part of it also may come down to the bystander effect, I'm guessing, where yes. there are multiple people behind you. Somebody needs to to boo this man for cutting, but I'm not going to be the one to boo him. Surely one of these people behind me will be the booer. So one of the findings of this experiment was that people do, to some extent, look to other people in line for cues as to whether and how the rules of the line should be enforced. Uh, That was discovered by – they found that if they put – experimenters in the line. So now the actors in this experiment are not just the line cutter, but also some other people who have just been following the rules and waiting in line ahead of time. Uh, And they have those people do nothing in response to an intrusion in the line. Other line standers are more likely to just let the cutter skate by and do nothing also. Mm -hmm. So they were showing to some extent, if there are other people around and they don't react, you're less likely to react. I don't know if that necessarily counts as exactly the bystander effect. I mean, there's clearly – I think there's some overlap with the bystander effect, but that people don't always know intuitively or don't trust their own instincts about how norms should be enforced. Mm -hmm. And so when you see somebody do something that looks like a violation of norms, 
probably the first thing you do is look around and see how other people are reacting. Like, are they starting to yell at this guy? And if they do, then you might join in. But if not, you might just assume like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going on. Well, we were talking about like public outreach and public campaigns. So you can imagine one that is, you know, like mind the gap, uh, mm-hmm. you know, wait in line, honor the queue or whatever it happens to be. But unless you have a specific bit of uh, propaganda that's saying like, if you see somebody cutting in line, boo that man, yeah. join in a chorus of boos. And, you know, unless, yeah. unless there's yeah. some sort of messaging like that, you just don't know how to respond. Right. So clearly, uh, clearly we have a strong inclination to take our cues from other people in a, in an informal, uh, uh, system of social norms like a self-organized line. Uh, but then there are some other things they found too in the Milgram experiment. Uh, perhaps no surprise here, but people behind the point of intrusion were much more likely to put up some kind of resistance than people ahead of the point of intrusion. Mm. So clearly there is some element of self-interest at work. The pre- people ahead of the intrusion we're more likely to, you know, just be like, yeah, maybe that's maybe the, none of my business. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, perhaps not surprising, resistance was greater when there were two line cutters than when there was one. So if two people are getting in there after the third person, you're really <laughs> more likely to get people yelling at you. Yeah, be, because, you know, it's, are you talking about two people that are together or two people just independently? Actually, I don't know what all the permutations they did on mm. on that part were. I mean, I think what it was was the two were entering the line at the same time. Okay, I mean, I could see it would. I could see where it would escalate things either way because either these two people were cutting in front of front of me and they're together and they're like working together to corrupt the line system, or mm. if it's just two random people, it's like, what are we doing here? Yeah, we, suddenly there's just chaos. There's just people showing up and just jumping in line. Cats and dogs, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to read another thing from their findings. Uh, Milgram et al. write, quote, results suggested that the underlying structure of the queue is composed of replicated segments and that defense of the queue is local rather than systemic. And I like that because they, they essentially found that, you know, sort of parts of the line each have their own local militia to defend <laughs> that part of the line. You may be less concerned about uh, violations to the order of the line that happen farther away from where you are in it. Hmm. Like if you're the back of the line and it's a fairly long line, you really don't have much room to complain about people cutting at the very front, perhaps? Yeah, maybe. Uh, Now, there was a follow-up in 1992 by uh, Schmidt et al. It was a paper called Intrusions into Waiting Lines. Does the queue constitute a social system? Uh, this was also in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, 92, by Bernd H. Schmidt, uh, Lorette Dubay, and uh, Franz Leclerc. And they tested, quote, whether a waiting line should be viewed as a social system with norms, roles, and obligations for queuers, or whether behavior in a queue can be explained solely by individuals' personal interest and cost versus benefit calculations. Uh, so does that question make sense? Is a line just a bunch of people who are each trying to get as little waiting time for themselves as possible? Or is it more like a society that has some like understood rules that people will try to enforce however uh, however it affects their own personal waiting time? Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And what the authors here found is they said, yep, it really looks like like lines are more like social systems with norms and rules, more like a sort of mini society than just a, you know, a pure like efficiency maximizing game where people are trying to get out on their own as fast as possible. And one example they gave of this is that people in line will uh, will quite significantly make a distinction between a, quote, legitimate intrusion into the order of the line and an illegitimate one, even if the weight is the same length. Uh, So if you have somebody coming in who gives some explanation that's like, you know, they're a service provider and they have to get in in front of you in line to do something here in the line, people understand these exceptions and incorporate them just fine, even if it means waiting an additional amount uh, the the same amount that they would wait if somebody made some kind of illegitimate intrusion into the order of the line. So people are like understanding reasons for things and they're acting out norms based on those reasons rather than just trying to get out as fast as they can no matter what. Huh. How is this not a, like a 1980s Stephen King short story? Because he's, <laughs> I can think of multiple works that he did where, be it like The Mist or The, the Dome, where you have a system where people are put into a certain 
situation, mm-hmm. and then like a social order emerges out of the that predicament. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I could see an entire, at least a short it's story. Usually take a bad place. one, though. <laughs> yeah, usually it's a bad one. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, just waiting in line, especially if you if there's some mystery as to what you're waiting in line for. That's that's perfect stuff for uh, for, for some sort of, especially a 1980s era uh, King short story. You can't have a healthy line without a Mrs. Carmody. <laughs> inciting the line against cure number four. Um, okay. Uh, but, uh, Oh, another thing that I thought was interesting. So as to the roles that people play within a line, you might think, okay, a line is homogenous. Everybody in a mm-hmm. line is basically waiting, you know, they're all doing the same thing, but they're actually, uh, in this study, they found there seems to be an implicit special role for the person directly following the intruder in dictating the overall response of people in line. Quote, the cure right behind the intrusion point has a special obligation to respond to the intrusion. Does this ring true to you? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. It kind of comes down to the individual versus the group. Like if the individual is not offended, then then perhaps the group has less room to be offended. Maybe. I mean, I would think that, again, it probably comes down to people looking for cues. People don't know how to react to something, mm-hmm. and they're looking for cues to get from other people. And it seems like the most natural place they would look for that cue is, what is the person right behind the intrusion doing? And mm-hmm. that that person would have a lot of influence socially over your idea of what the correct kind of response is. Yeah. I mean, also, depending on the cueing culture, perhaps – that person who just joined the line, maybe maybe they were taking a bathroom break or something, or maybe you yeah. know they were they were holding a spot for them, or maybe there were shoes on the ground and I just didn't notice it. You know, any of these mm-hmm. these things could be, uh, be could be part of the equation. Yeah, I think that makes sense too because you might assume that the person right there in the line has some kind of information that you don't. Yeah, or maybe they're together. Maybe maybe, yeah. maybe it's two people that are going to see the movie together and one just had to go buy some popcorn or something how offended can i be that now there there are two people where there was one before but this does bring me back to the question of what counts as a legitimate excuse in cutting in line right like if so you're waiting in line at the grocery store or at you know at whatever a service point you know you're trying to check out at a store and somebody comes up to you and says hey can i get in front of you in line because and you know they say something what kinds of excuses are legitimate to you and would make you say like, yeah, okay. And what are the other mitigating circumstances that would affect that? Well, I I think of lines that have formed to use uh, a toilet Mm -hmm. as being a great example of this, because there, there's a biological um, factor here that cannot be ignored and you're going to have room for age also to play into it. So if it's like a young child that's doing the, the pee-pee dance, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to – nobody wants to be responsible for a child peeing their pants. Sure. Uh, so you would say, yes, please, uh, go go ahead of me. Take – both of you, take this child a- ahead of me and, and go use the facilities. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody were to explain it to themselves to, – to, to you and be like, uh, hey, I am uh, about to just have a, a terrible incident occur. Uh, you can spare us both this if you just let me in front of you. Uh, then you would be like, yes, by all means. I, I am not having an emergency. If you're having an emergency, you should definitely go ahead of me. Yes, that's interesting because I, I was just thinking about how my reaction to somebody asking to get in front of me online, in line might actually have more to do with what's going on with me than what's going mm-hmm. on with them. Like I, I would tend to think I would be happy to let people in front of me for something – Basically, no matter what their excuse is, in most cases, if I'm not in some kind of dire situation myself. Right. Uh, but if I'm in some kind of dire situation where, like, I've got to get out of here right now, you know, I've got to get this done. And that that would be the thing that would make me reject them, not the question of what their actual excuse is. Because in most cases, if I'm checking out at a store or something, it's like, well, yeah, fine, I, I don't care. Yeah. The more I think about it, though, I think that something like uh, explosive diarrhea is is al- always an excuse to get to the front of the line. I'm having trouble coming up with a single case where someone would say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you? Uh, I'm about to have explosive diarrhea. Uh, a case where I would say, no, absolutely not. Like, what if it's if they, like a line for the hot dog stand? Well, then they need, a, they need to pick up lunch, but then they need to go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> oh, OK. But I don't know. I guess in some cases I might be like, look, I'll talk to the line. Um, you go use the bathroom. We will find a space for you. 
uh, when you get back. I don't know. Okay. I mean, I guess that's a situation where the social order of the line has to provide. So concerning the idea of a legitimate excuse for line cutting, I wanted to refer to a classic study in the social psychology of queuing that is uh, widely cited and, and pretty interesting. Uh, this one, this time is from the Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer. Uh, it was actually by Langer, uh, Blank, and Chanowitz, published in 1978, called uh, The Mindlessness of Ostensibly Thoughtful Action, The Role of Placebic Information in Interpersonal Interaction. Again, this was in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found a good summary of, of this whole study in another paper by uh, Kleinberg et al. in 2018. And so this is the Kleinberg et al. summary of, of the study here. Langer et al. in 1978 asked subjects in their study to make some copies. Just as they were about to do so, a confederate asked to jump in front of them. In some cases, the confederate gave no reason at all. Quote, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? In others, a reason was given. Quote, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? The third condition had the veneer of a reason, but it actually had no informational content. Quote, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Because I have to make copies. People complied at similar rates to both the actual reason and the pseudo reason, uh, 94% and 93% uh, respectively, versus 60% with no reason. What explains this finding? People see a situation they have seen before and their automatic response kicks in to avoid the effort of processing the rest of this setting. Consistent with this view, when the costs of complying go up, uh, when the Confederate wants to copy 20 pages, not just five, compliance to the pseudo reason is similar to what it is in the no reason condition. Um <laughs> So I thought this was really funny when I first read it, that that people are just as likely, I mean, it's equal numbers to let you cut in front of them if, as long as you say because something, even if the because statement is utterly inane, I, may I use the Xerox machine because I have to make copies. Right. Un unless you have a stronger because, yeah, then you know, what's the, the, the point? You're just going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, you, you have an exception. You should go first. So I guess this is uh, this one is actually a little bit less about queuing and more about how we uh, whether and how we incorporate information in making decisions at the spur of the moment. Uh, but I like how you, when you think about this, this could, I think, be applied to other scenarios uh, where, where people have some excuse they want to get ahead. And as long as they appear to have an excuse, even if it's not really an excuse at all, you'd just be like, yeah, OK, what I, I don't care. Yeah, I, I think something I was thinking about this, thinking about it in relation to traffic. It's kind of like if you're in the fast lane. Mm -hmm. And you were going, you know, let's say you're already going five to 10 mile, miles over the speed limit anyway. Okay. So you're pretty, pretty going, going pretty fast. You qualify as fast, but then somebody comes up behind you and they're going really fast. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes this will um, inflate the ego a bit and you may think, I am already going fast enough. I will not get into the slow lane because then I will be stuck behind the tractor trailer rig for the mm -hmm. next mile mm -hmm. or two. No, I am staying here and you may ride behind me and, um, and, and ride, uh, you know, dangerously close to my bumper and uh, occasionally flash your lights, uh, but I will not move. Uh, that's one way to go about it. But then for my part, and sometimes I, my mind entertains that sort of thing, but other times, I'll re more reasonably think this person is driving maybe a little dangerously, and mm -hmm. I would rather that person be in front of me than behind me, mm -hmm. and I should just let them go, uh, even if it is going to inconvenience me a little bit when I'm stuck behind a tractor-trailer rig. And I kind of feel... Like that would be the case with somebody who really wanted to get in front of me uh, at, say, the, the Xerox machine. Do I really want that person behind me looking over my shoulder, like waiting on me? Like that's going to especially if I don't really know how to use the machine. Let oh, them yeah. go. I want to I want to have a calmer experience with the Xerox machine. Right. The awkwardness of having this person looking over your shoulder and, and trying to get out behind you maybe like factored in at a higher cost in your brain than the time cost of just letting them go. Yeah. And it's just five copies, so you know, what's the harm? Right. Now, all of this, this is partially because I just watched this, and I think you just watched this as well, but the yeah. the, the, uh, the excellent um, sketch 
uh, comedy series, You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. I think you should leave. I think you should leave, yes. Yeah. I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. Um, so many of those sketches are situations where there's some sort of like a weird, awkward social interaction and one side or the other is vastly overreacting uh-huh. to what's occurring. And I feel like you could you could basically adapt this Xerox machine sketch uh, w- without even altering it much into a very entertaining Tim Robinson sketch. Because I have to make copies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think about this, but so many of the Tim Robinson sketches are about situations where there's some kind of ambiguity in the rules and someone exploits that ambiguity to a ludicrous degree (laughs) and then has a monstrous overreaction to people's reaction to their exploitation. Uh, uh, like uh, the 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 nachos scene from the first season, where mm-hmm. she asked, "Did you come over here and and tell uh, tell him to ask me not to eat the fully loaded nachos?" And he's just saying, "What?" <laughs> yeah, or there's a there's a second season sketch where the uh, the professor that um, the three oh, yeah. former students are having dinner yes. with, uh, he wants to eat what the other person ordered. So you know, there's this whole. This pushing of the boundaries, I'm like just joking, I, yeah, yeah, I'm just joking, okay. and then ultimately, can I have a bite of that? And he has a bite of it, and then he's like, "I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm going to eat." I'm this just whole joking, thing. though. <laughs> <laughs> he eats it, but he was just joking. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Now, I will advise, you know, the the Tim Robinson um, uh, comedy series. I think you should leave it is not for for everyone. Uh, it is not for all ages, and it is. Sketch comedy in general, I guess, is it can be wildly uneven, uh, mm. and I definitely find that show to be wildly uneven. Um, it's like some sketches are, are ingenious in their stupidity, and some I just I feel like I just to- just totally blow past me, and I don't understand what the point was. Um, but you know, again, it's part of sketch. I think in the first season, some sketches that just totally blew past me the first time really grew on me in subsequent viewings. That's uh, yeah. I think it's kind of a masterpiece of well, the, yeah. Sometimes like the non like something that's really nonsensical, if it's repeated enough, it takes on a, an order and a yes. sense. Uh, and so th- there are certainly examples of that in the show where yeah, you tell one bad joke. Or or one weird but maybe not particularly funny joke. Uh, well, okay, then nobody laughs. But if you keep doing it, if you just keep doing it, mm-hmm. and you just ramp up the intensity, then you can get somewhere, and uh, and it can work brilliantly. It's definitely one of the greatest original to Netflix things uh, up there with uh, with Dark Crystal for me, <laughs> which I'm sad we're never going to get more of. But I'm glad we got well, there, more. There might be more of it. Um, Oh, really? I thought that they had said that there was going to be no more. Well, there's not going to be any more of it on Netflix, but I think oh. that uh, the, the, the Jim Henson Company is, has, has or is looking into ways to continue the story. So uh, oh. who knows what we'll get. Well, that'd be um, wonderful. I believe, I have not been, but I believe the Atlanta's own uh, Center for Puppetry Arts currently has an exhibit, uh, an updated Dark Crystal exhibit using pieces from the TV series. Oh, wow. i got to check that out. I'd seen their other Dark Crystal exhibit, which was which was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of a, a part two of that. Nice. All right. Well, we've 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 drifted away from the the topic at hand here, but we're going to return to the line in a third episode. We have more stuff to talk about. Uh, not only waiting in line, but just sort of waiting in general. Like, how does it how does it affect us? How does it affect our moods and our perception of time? We're going to get into that and more in the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. In the meantime, we'd, of course, love to hear from everyone out there. And we've been hearing some great stuff uh, from folks about waiting in line. So keep it coming. And if you want to listen to our show, uh, you can find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Artifacts usually come out on Wednesdays. Lister Mail on Mondays. Weird House Cinema on Friday. That's our time to set aside most of the science and just talk about a weird film. And then we have a rerun on the weekend. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Thank you.